Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter 5. We've been, um, uh, for the last several weeks, we've been going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And um, uh, we've worked our way up to the middle part of the, of the fifth chapter of, uh, of Hebrews. Up until this point in time, uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, let me summarize a couple of things. The theme of the book is better. Uh, the writer, I believe it was Apostle Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews. There's, a, there's a, some good evidence that, that would indicate so. We don't know for sure. But anyway, I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. If we get to heaven and find out I was wrong, then God can correct me there. But uh, nevertheless, um, Paul identifies that Christianity is better than Judaism in many ways. He identifies that the believer's position is better than the old covenant position in many different ways. And so chapter by chapter, subject by subject, Paul identifies that, uh, that Christ is greater than the angels. He identifies that our relationship in Christ makes us superior to the angels. He talks about Christ being superior to the old covenant uh, priest Aaron and the, the tribe of Levi. And now in the, uh, the fifth chapter, he has gotten to the place where he's begun talking. Actually, it started in chapter 4. But he's begun talking about our high priest, Jesus in the role of our high priest, seated at the right hand of God. Now, he spends some time, and, and with, with each of these subjects, Paul doesn't use New Testament scriptures. He doesn't use gospel scriptures. He uses Old Testament scriptures, things that the Jews are familiar with. And many of those that, uh, uh, that this letter is written to, the, the church at Jerusalem, uh, may include the high priest, may include many of the priesthood. The Bible says that, uh, that many of the priests believed on Jesus during the book of Acts. And so he knows that he's writing to people that are well-schooled and well-acquainted with the Old Covenant. And so he uses the Old Covenant to prove his case. He uses the Old Testament. He talks about how that uh, Jesus is called of God after the order of Melchizedek to be a high priest forever. And he takes that from the Old Testament, Psalm 110. And so he spends some time there, and, and we'll refer back to Psalm 110 uh, in some of the upcoming weeks because he is going to continue this theme. It's really the, the, the biggest part of the book of Hebrews, the letter that he wrote to the Hebrews, is about Jesus as our high priest. But in chapter 5, he takes a detour. He, uh, we'll start reading in verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He's called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As, as I said, he's quoting Psalm 110, I think it's verse 4. And then he goes in verse 11, he says, of whom we have many things to say. Now, he's talking about Jesus, not Melchizedek. We know that because he's going to tell us some things about Melchizedek further on in chapter 7. But he's talking about Jesus, and he says, now, there's a lot of things I'd like to tell you about Jesus and his high priestly role. But we have many things to say, but they're hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. Now, Paul is... is uh, this is a common theme throughout Scripture. You remember Jesus said to the disciples, there are many things that I would say to you, but you can't bear them. It's, um, we seem to have the idea, and, and uh, I guess it's a common thing, but we seem to have the idea that we want to know it all right now. But have you found out that, that the Christian life is line upon line and precept upon precept? You find out things that you're able to find out. You learn things as you're able to bear them. And so Paul is, is identifying where they are. Now, let's stop and think about who they are. This letter, I believe, and there's uh, historical evidence as well as some things that he wrote to, to the Galatians, that this letter was attached to the letter that he wrote to the Galatians, knowing full well. The reason he didn't combine the two letters is because he knew full well that this would be taken back to Jerusalem and, and it would be spread among the Jews. 
The church at Jerusalem was sending out, in many cases, uh, I say the church at Jerusalem, Jerusalem itself. Maybe not the church, but there were high priests or there were others that were associated with the church at, at some, in some way, maybe at arm's length, but in some uh, capacity. They were going out and, and trying to, to uh, disrupt the churches that Paul was starting among the Gentiles. And so he knows who these people are. He's just written to the Galatians and talked about how they've, they, the Gentile church at Galatia, allowed, or in the region of Galatia, those churches allowed the Jews from Jerusalem to take them away from the truth of the gospel that he had preached to them. So he's writing to people that started off with the word. The church began in Jerusalem. And look at the signs and the wonders and the miracles and all the wonderful things that were done in, uh, in the book of Acts, the early days of the book of Acts. Look at how Jesus showed himself to be risen from the dead. All of these things started. There was more work done by the apostles in Jerusalem than any other place. More work of teaching was done there. Paul even wanted to teach in Jerusalem, and the Holy Ghost wouldn't let him do it. They hated him so much at that point in time because he had changed from being the persecutor of the church to being a Christian that they wanted to kill him, and it disrupted the church, so Paul had to leave town. So Paul knows where these people started. Now, the time this book is written is probably somewhere 60, anywhere from 62 to 67 A.D. So that would mean the church at Jerusalem is just about 30, maybe 32, 34 years old. Jesus was raised from the dead in 33 A.D., so they're just over 30 years old. Now, the church has fallen to such a degree that there's hardly any anointing there. There's hardly any, any, any gospel uh, uh, outreach that's taking place in Jerusalem. It's a church that has gone from the power of God to just existing. But James is the pastor of the church. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the pastor of the church. Peter's part of the church. There's no reason in the world why the church should be so dead and so lifeless. But you remember the story about how the book of Acts tells us that Peter left the church at Jerusalem to go to Antioch where the Holy Ghost was moving. Jews and Gentiles were mixing in together. He sat down with the Gentiles and ate. I'm sure they had pork sandwiches or something. And all the things that, that weren't, weren't kosher according to the law of Moses. And he was just enjoying it. I mean, the, the presence of God, the Spirit of God was on everybody to such a degree. It was just a wonderful thing. And then Jews came from Jerusalem to find out why Peter was so long in coming back. And when he saw the Jews coming from Jerusalem, then he pulled away from the Gentiles. And then he wouldn't have anything to do with them. That's what was going on in the church of Jerusalem. If it hadn't been, why would he have separated himself from the Gentiles to impress these guys or make them think that he's one of them? That's who he's writing to. So Paul stops right in the middle of his message about Jesus being the high priest, and he says, we've got a lot of things to say, but they're hard to utter because you're so dull. The word dull is the Greek word slothful in hearing. In other words, because you turned loose of the things that you had. For when for the time, now this is a bad translation, when for is literally because of, for because of the time you ought to be teachers. You need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become, notice that phrase, and are become, such as, as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, there's two ways that we can look at this, and I think both of them are accurate. One is where it says, for because of the time. Well, what time? What's he talking about the time? Well, the church is 30 years old. It's the oldest church in, 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 in Christianity. And so they've been in this long enough for them to have been established and solid in the doctrines and the truth of the Word of God so that they ought to be able to help other people and teach them. Now, he's not talking about people standing in the office of the teacher. But, folks, look at our church. Our church is almost 26 years old. 
would it make sense for us now to go back to the things that we had before we found out about the Word? That'd be crazy. I mean, look at the, the damage that could be done in people. Well, we've been in this long enough to where you ought to know what you believe and why. That's the whole purpose for our church, is to make people strong in the knowledge of the Word of God so that they can share what they've got with somebody else. I don't want you just to find, about, find out about God and go have a party. I want you to have a party and then to have other people join into your party. That's why it's so important. And, and, and in my opinion, that's what's missing in the body of Christ. And Paul seems to be saying the same thing. So much of the church don't know why they believe what they're told to believe. But if you know why you believe what you believe, then you can explain it to somebody else. You can teach them. That's what he's talking about. So certainly he's got to be saying, you've been in this long enough to where you ought to be mature in teaching other people and helping them to understand the things that you've learned. But there's another aspect of this too. What happened in 70 A.D.? Jerusalem was invaded by Rome and the temple was destroyed. The city was besieged. This is somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven years, well, maybe three to seven years, really. This book was written three to seven years before Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and the temple uh, torn down brick by brick. So where Paul is talking, now, we don't know he, uh, that he knows this. We certainly know that, that the disciples are aware that Jesus said that there was coming a time, but they didn't know what the time was when the temple was going to be destroyed. But wouldn't it be just like the Holy Ghost to say it's important because of the day that you're living in, because of the time of destruction that's at hand, for you to be strong in the Word and able to help other people in that with the destruction or on the horizon? That's the time that they're in, folks. It's interesting also, uh, to me at least, I don't know if it is to you, but the book of James was written just about the same time as the book of Hebrews was. And so James gives us a picture of what was going on in the church of Jerusalem because he's writing to his own people, not just uh, Jews that are other places, but he's writing to the Jews that are there in Jerusalem as well. And he can he talks about the condition of the Jews, the spiritual condition of the Jews, and it's just about exactly what Paul's going to say here about in chapter 5. So he says, we've got a lot of things to tell you about Jesus, but you're not able to hear them. They're going to be hard things for me to say because you've been so slothful in your hearing. In other words, you've turned loose of the things that, we, that you've known before. For because of the time, you ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become as such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Notice it says they became like baby Christians. They didn't start out that way. Well, they did start out that way 30 years earlier. But they had grown past that, and now they've gone back to being baby Christians. Folks, you need to understand something. Just like the Bible is so true where it says faith comes by hearing, faith goes by not hearing. You turn loose of hearing the word in any particular subject, and you'll go backwards. I can show you ministers that were dynamic preachers in their day, and something happened, they got off track, and now you wouldn't even know they even knew enough about the Bible to be a preacher. Why? Because you get you turn loose of things and they get away from you. So he says, you've become that way. They've become like baby Christians. Now, Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul said, And brethren, I could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, because you are babes in Christ. And as a result, he said, I, ha I can't feed you meat, I have to feed you milk. You remember that? Well, what was the difference in the Corinthian church and the Hebrews? The church at Jerusalem. 
The difference was the Corinthian church had never grown out of being a babyhood from, in a babyhood stage of Christianity. The, the Jew, Jerusalem church had grown past babyhood, and now they've regressed back to it. And for that reason, Paul deals with the Corinthians in a totally different manner than he deals with the Jews, the Jews in Jerusalem. Totally different. They're in two different categories. And sometimes people are going to see things that come up in chapter 6 about uh, somebody falling away and it being impossible to renew them to repentance, and they try to apply that to everybody and to every situation. And it only applied to the one situation that Paul's dealing with. So he said, we've got things to say, but you can't hear them. And now you've become, you've gone back, reverted, if you will, back to babyhood stage of Christianity. Verse 13, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Now, folks, do you remember back in um, verse 8? Look up at verse 8 with me for just a moment, if you will. It's talking about Jesus, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by or through, literally, through the things which he suffered. This is the same uh, the same subject, the same idea, or the same concept that Paul is continuing. How many times do we hear, the trying of your faith worketh patience? Well, everybody's familiar with that. Okay, well, what does that mean? Most people think that means trials produce patience. And they don't. If trials produce patience, then every Christian would be patient. Trials do not produce patience. It's what you do in the trial. It's the standing on the word in the midst of the trial that produces patience. That's why it's the trying of your faith that works patience, not just the trial itself. But I don't think a lot of people read it that way. I think a lot of people just think, well, these hard places will will work something in me. Not unless you work the word in the middle of them. If you don't work the word in the middle of your problem, you're just going to repeat the same problem again down the road with another chance. So that's what it's saying about Jesus. It wasn't the, the, the trial. The cross did not make Jesus obedient. It was the life that he lived of applying the word in every adversity and every hardship that he encountered. That's what causes you to grow. It's what causes you to develop in the things of God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14. He's saying it's spiritual children or babies that fail to use the word in the middle of their trials, that fail to use the word in the middle of their everyday experience. They're the ones that are unskillful. They haven't had their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Why not? Because they haven't used the word in the middle of their problems. But, though, but strong meat belongs to those that are of full age. In other words, he's talking about spiritual maturity. He's saying spiritual maturity is a result of applying the word of God in the middle of the situation. Now, to the Corinthians, he called them spiritual babies. He said they were carnal. Literally, that means body ruled. Well, babies are babies, no matter whether you started off that way or reverted back there. So he's saying now that the children, that the, uh, uh, the church of Jerusalem is full of babies. Carnal, body ruled. What does that mean? That means they don't operate by the word anymore. They're operating by their senses, their five physical senses. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that there are, there are similarities between spiritual growth and natural growth. The Bible talks about spiritual babyhood. It talks about childhood. It talks about adulthood and so forth. Well, what do we know about babies? I mean, if we just look at babies and try to make a, a spiritual connection here, it's real easy in a lot of ways. Number one, babies are helpless. 
They're totally dependent on the attention of somebody else. And they demand attention full time. Spiritual babies are that way too. You know something else about spiritual babies? Spiritual babies use their emotions to get what they want. If a baby's hungry, what does he do? He cries. Why? Because he can't communicate. And folks, the New Testament, the New Covenant is all about believing in your heart and communicating, saying with your mouth. Spiritual babies don't do that. And not only that, a spiritual baby doesn't know value. Everything that a, that a baby gets his hand on goes in his mouth. Piece of dirt goes in his mouth. A diamond goes in his mouth. That's the way it is with spiritual babies. They can't discern what's good and what's right. They can't discern what has value and what doesn't. And so spiritual babies are running all over the place. Did you hear what this preacher said? Did you hear what that preacher said? Did you hear this TV show on? Did you hear that? Did you go to this convention? Did you do the other? They're all spread out. They're going to everything. They're sticking everything in their mouth, thinking everything that anybody says is God is really God. They don't know how to determine value. That's one of the most frustrating things for me. Because somebody will take the truth of the word and then throw it away because somebody that's more well-known We'll tell them something that's not true. It's characteristic of spiritual babyhood. You know something else about spiritual babies? You got to keep them entertained. You will make faces and sounds talking to a baby that you would never make under any other circumstance. Isn't that true? That's the way it is with spiritual babies. Spiritual babies are looking for somebody else to do the work. And that's what these folks have reverted back to. So please understand that from verse 11 all the way down to verse 14, Paul is starting uh, the subject. He's starting the concept of spiritual maturity. Please keep that in mind. Because if you don't understand that, then chapter 6 is going to be indistinct to you. It'll be undecipherable. Because a lot of times people just want to pull certain scriptures out of chapter 6, especially in the first five or six verses, and they want to apply them in places that Paul didn't mean them to be applied. He's talking about spiritual maturity. Everybody get that? He's saying, I can't tell you the things that I want to tell you about Jesus right now because you're not mature enough to handle it. And he shows them the difference between being a baby and being a, a mature person spiritually. Spiritually mature people are those that can take meat. The same meat that, you, that might be a real blessing, the same steak that might be a real blessing to you and me might choke your children, especially babies. That's what he's saying. We have to develop into these things. They should have developed. They should have continued to develop, but they didn't. They regressed. Now, something made them regress. It doesn't just happen naturally. Something made them regress. Something caused them to go from whatever level of maturity or development that they had or should have had over these 30-something years, back to spiritual babyhood, right? What is that? That's what he's going to talk about in chapter 6. Verse 1. Therefore, therefore meaning because these things about maturing spiritually are true, because your condition has been established, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Perfection means maturity. He's saying, therefore, you need to focus on maturing spiritually. You need to focus on being mature. You clearly haven't been because you're no longer mature. Or you're no longer where you were. 
or you're no longer where you ought to be, you've regressed back to a spiritual babyhood condition. So therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Now at that point, you should put a parenthesis around the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Because everything Paul is going to say in the rest of the the second half of verse 1 and in verse 2 is a parenthesis about spiritual maturity. What does he say? Not laying again. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptism. The word doctrine means teachings. And of, meaning the teachings of laying on of hands, and the teaching of resurrection of the dead, and the teaching of eternal judgment. That's the end of the parentheses. And this we will do if God permit. What will we do if God permit? Go on to perfection. Go on to spiritual maturity. Now, notice in the first part of verse 1, it says, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... How many of you think that the, the last half of verse 1 and verse 2 are the six doctrines of the, the six principal doctrines of Christ? Chicken. Nine out of ten believers do. Nine out of ten Christians think that's what he's talking about. And that's not what he's talking about at all. Not what he's talking about at all. These are aspects of Judaism. These are the things that are keeping them from going on to perfection. These are the things that cause them to go backwards to where now they're baby Christians again. Now, don't get me wrong. Every one of these six doctrines are fulfilled in the New Covenant and has an application in the New Testament, the New Covenant. Jesus did something about them to bring us into a greater understanding and even enhance some of these things, even enhanced our understanding of some of these teachings. But every one of them has its foundation in Judaism. So let's look at them. Notice it says, not laying again, number one, the foundation. By the way, in the original Greek, there is no definitive article here. It's not the foundation, it's a foundation. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Notice it does not say repentance from sin. It says repentance from dead works. Folks, repentance from dead works is part of the old covenant. Well, Pastor Mike, shouldn't we repent from dead works too? Yeah, but you shouldn't be doing them now anyway to repent from. That was a bad way to say it. You know what I'm trying to say? You shouldn't be doing dead works now to have anything to repent of. We've got a totally different situation in Christ. Repentance of dead works is the Old Testament. Remember, that was the baptism of John. John said, repent and be baptized because there's one coming after me that I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. And he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Everything about John's baptism was repentance. You remember when Jesus or when um, Paul got to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Paul came to Ephesus. Is it Acts chapter 19 or Acts chapter 16? I think it's 19. Acts chapter 19. He comes to Ephesus and he finds certain believers, certain disciples he thinks are believers. And so he says, uh, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? They said, we've never heard of the Holy Ghost. Well, Paul knows you can't be saved and not know about the Holy Ghost. How could you get saved and not know about the Holy Ghost? So he said, under what are you baptized then? They said, we're baptized under John's baptism. Well, what did he say? John baptized with a baptism of repentance. Repentance from what? From dead works. There was no repentance from sin under the old covenant because you couldn't be wiped away from sin except through the day of atonement, the animal sacrifice. There's no repentance from sin. It's repentance from dead works. 
See, the old covenant always dealt with the outward man. It always dealt with the actions of man. That's why it was incapable of bringing righteousness in and of itself. Repentance from dead works is not the new covenant. Now, now, certainly there's an aspect there that we should apply to our lives. But Paul is saying, you guys have left the things of Jesus and gone back to the other. Now, notice, let me read the list again and, and make a point. I, I, I don't... I don't, it doesn't seem to me that I'm getting this across. So let me, let me back up again and try to, try it over. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptism and of the laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Do anybody remember what Jesus asked the disciples or said to the disciples when he asked who people said he was? Jesus asked his disciples, Matthew chapter, what is it, 17, 16, 17, somewhere in there. He said, uh, who do men say I am? And the disciples answered. Peter spoke up and said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. And other people say you're Elijah or one of the other prophets, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said, well, who do you say I am? And again, Peter answers for the group. And he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember what Jesus answered? He said, blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not uh, revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you... That upon this rock, now, he, upon this rock I will build my church. What rock is he talking about? The knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus is saying he's going to build the church. Now, that would, the, the, what you build something on would be the foundation, wouldn't it? So Jesus is saying the foundation of the church is going to be the knowledge that he's the Son of God. Where in this list is Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus being the Son of God? This can't be the foundation of the church. There is only one foundation of the church. And that's Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. It's not in this list. These are Old Testament things. Repentance from dead works is Old Testament. Faith toward God. Abraham had faith toward God. It brought him into a, the, the promise of salvation, but it didn't save him. It got him into Abraham's bosom along with the Old Testament saints, but it didn't bring him into righteousness, did it? He's a great example for us to follow. Paul talks about that. Talk to the Romans about it. He's going to talk to the Jews about it later on, chapter 11. He gives us a whole list of heroes of faith in chapter 11. But it didn't bring righteousness, didn't bring salvation. It can't be the principal doctrine of Christ because Christ is about salvation. He's about righteousness. These foundations have their roots in Judaism. He goes on, the doctrine of baptisms. Well, don't we have baptisms? Churches have fought wars over this concerning water baptism. Baptism literally means washing or cleansing. The doctrine of baptism even includes the high priests, where they had ritual ceremonial baths and stuff like that that they had to do before they could do, perform the service of the Lord. They were baptized under Moses. Baptism carries the idea of identification. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that they, they, the children of Israel, were all baptized into Moses when they came through the Red Sea. Not a one of them got wet. Only people got wet were the, the Egyptians that followed in after them and drowned. So baptism doesn't have anything to do with water. Now we know there is a, a water baptism that is a type of something that's already happened on the inside once you get saved. But baptisms, there were a lot of baptisms. And notice baptism is in the plural. There's a lot of baptisms in the Old Testament and even in the, um, uh, even in the Gospels. You remember when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River? Well, what was that? That was part of the doctrine of baptisms. Why? Because Jesus was being identified with the Old Testament prophets, of which John was one. 
John said, when Jesus came to him, he said, I I can't baptize you. I need to be baptized of you. And Jesus said, it needs be so that I must be baptized of you to fulfill Scripture. So what's he saying? He's saying, I have to be identified with the Old Testament promise and the Old Testament prophets. What did that baptism do? It identified Jesus with the new phase of his ministry. That's when the Holy Ghost came upon him, and that's when he started doing the works. That's what these folks have turned away from Christianity for. They're talking about repentance from dead works. That's why they're telling the Galatians, you've got to be circumcised. And they did that with other churches as well. Why? Because circumcision is a sign of repentance from dead works. It's a sign of, I'm part of God's covenant now. But the Bible says that we're circumcised in the heart, not of the flesh under the new covenant. So he says the doctrine of baptisms. Now we know that the doctrine of baptisms has been added too. There's a baptism in the Holy Ghost. There's a baptism into Christ. They didn't know anything about that until Jesus came and was raised from the dead. And there is water baptism, but it's the least of the others. It talks about the doctrine of laying on of hands. Laying on of hands goes back to the Old Testament priests. Where Moses laid his hands on Aaron and Aaron became separated for the service of the Lord. Moses laid his hands on the 70 elders. And the spirit that was on him, the spirit of God that was on him was transferred to them. Laying on of hands, the doctrine of laying on of hands is all about God transmitting something supernatural to man through man. Through his representatives. That's what he's talking about there. Now, there's a doctrine of laying on hands in the New Testament. Same doctrine, same truth has been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the doctrine of laying on of hands is when we lay hands on the sick or we lay hands on people by the direction of the Holy Ghost, God works through our hands to minister to them supernaturally. But that's not the principal foundation of the church. It's part of the work of the church. Jesus said so. Jesus said, these signs will follow them that lay hand, that lend them that believe in my name. They'll lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. But that's not a principal foundation of the church. Without the foundation of Jesus being the Christ, Jesus being the Messiah, what good is laying on the hands? Do you see the point I'm making? This is what caused them to pull away from the truth of Jesus. This is why they have reverted back to a babyhood stage of Christianity. These aren't the principal foundations of the church. By the way, something about foundations. This building has a foundation. Can you see it? At one time you could. When it was being laid and when it was being poured, you could. But you know why you can't now? Because now there's a floor on top of it. Now the foundation is hidden and it supports the rest of the building. But the building is Jesus. That's why we're not to look at the foundation. We're to look at Jesus. That's why the Bible calls it a foundation. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? And it all goes back to spiritual maturity. He's saying you can't grow spiritually mature if you keep going back to these things that are rooted in the old covenant. And these are the things that have taken you away from spiritual development. He goes further and he says of resurrection. The Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. This is not a New Testament doctrine. It's an Old Testament doctrine. Now, it's a, it's a right doctrine, so we still maintain that, that New Testament doctrine. But Paul talked about it. Paul standing before Festus in Acts chapter 24. He stood there and he said, these Jews that have, that have brought me up on, on charges, he said, I worship God according to the same things that they believe. I believe in the resurrection of the dead just like they do. Well, they're not saved. Paul says, I believe in the same thing that they do. But now he believes based on Jesus and Jesus' uh, completed work. 
They believed according to the law of Moses. Do you see the point? They're taking Jesus out of everything. They're taking the work of Jesus away from everything that he did to fulfill these doctrines and are sticking on the doctrines themselves. He goes further and says uh, uh, eternal judgment. The last one is uh, eternal judgment. Jews believe everybody's going to stand before the Lord, the just and the unjust. The Bible gives us more information about it than anybody else. Now we know because of the, the revelation by the Holy Ghost and through what Jesus has accomplished, how that eternal judgment works. The unsaved stand before the Lord in what's called the great white throne judgment. Not you. Nowhere does the Bible say that you'll be judged for sin. Why? Because sin has been dealt with when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. Yeah, but, but, but aren't our works judged? Yeah, but you get, people get the wrong idea about that too. That's not a hard thing. That's not a time where God looks down with an evil eye at you to see what you did or what you didn't do. That's an award ceremony. The idea is that we're going to live according to the Bible and therefore we're going to produce things that last for eternity, things that have eternal value. So we'll get rewards for those in heaven. It's not the time, well, it may be the time for some, unfortunately, the way a lot of Christians live. But it's not a time where God finally gets you. It says the works that we did here on the earth that were just for the flesh, they'll burn up. I'm afraid there'll be a bonfire for a lot of folks. But that's not what it's intended to be. It's intended to be an award ceremony. It's like a championship team, sports team, going to get their rings. You don't bring up the place where they box things up. That's what it is for us. So Paul says, again, back in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go into perfection. Let's mature. How are we going to do that? By not laying these other foundations. Not laying, again, these other foundations. Yeah, there's truth to it. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's information that the Old Testament gives that we can uh, uh, use and is useful to us, but we don't go back to those things. And this we will do. We'll go on to perfection if God will permit. Now, verse 4. I, I'm, I can save this for next week or I can go on. What do you want me to do? Okay. Remember, you said so. Paul has not changed subjects. He goes forward in verse 4 and he says, For it is impossible. I want you to know something. He's saying there is something that's impossible. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I thought with God all things are possible. Apart from God, not everything is possible. And what he's going to talk about being impossible is separated from God. So he said, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away. This is a real bad translation. It says, yet they fall away. Now, folks, Paul has not changed subjects. The same subject is being discussed that he started back in verse 11. And that is, you folks are spiritual babies. You should have matured, but you didn't. He's talking about spiritual maturity. The same progression that they started off with the Word, they started off with the power of God, they started off with the truth of the Word of God, revelation of the Holy Ghost, but then they regressed into babyhood stage of Christianity because they followed these wrong doctrines. Uh, That's a bad way to say it. They followed these Old Testament doctrines, Old Covenant doctrines, rather than the doctrine of Christ and focused on who Jesus is and who we are in Him. He's saying, you need to understand that if you keep traveling this road, here's where it goes.
Now, let me ask you a question. Why is it that people try to take these scriptures and apply that in everybody else's situation? Paul didn't write that to the Corinthians. He did not say, you know, you bunch of Christians that that are still babies, if you don't grow up, here's what's going to happen. You're going to lose your salvation. Yet in my experience, these scriptures are the ones that are pulled out by more people, generally baby or spiritual children, spiritual babies or spiritual children, that are pulled out to try to, 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 they're, they're wanting to know, how, how do I know that I'm not going to get there? How do I know I'm going to fall into this situation and, 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 and get to where I can't be renewed either? Well, folks, that's ridiculous. Because it gives you the steps of where somebody has to fall from in order to get out. I have never yet found somebody that was genuinely, actively pursuing living by the word that was really concerned about losing their salvation. But I found a lot of people that are living on the edge. And then it becomes a real concern for them. It's like, how close can we get to the edge of this cliff without falling over? Pastor Mike, it's your responsibility. You tell me. Because if I go over and you didn't tell me, it's your fault. How close can I get to the edge of the cliff without falling over? Folks, why do we want to be on the edge of the cliff? Why don't we get as far away from that edge as we can? That's the point Paul's making. So he says, for it is impossible. Now let me stop there and pull up verse 6. What is he talking about being impossible? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. The reason I want to point that out to you is because all the other stuff is just the, the, the criteria for the impossible condition. He said it's impossible to renew someone to repentance under these conditions. Okay? We're together? What are the conditions? The conditions are, number one, who were once enlightened. What is that talking about? Well, enlightened always means to have your eyes opened. It means to gain knowledge. It means it's impossible for somebody who the Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of their heart by conviction. That's step number one. Nobody ever gets saved without a convicting work of the Holy Ghost. Can't happen. Because without the convicting work of the Holy Ghost, the gospel is just a fairy tale. And there's no reason to believe in Jesus any more than there is a reason to believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Because they're just words, they're just story. And how many times do we hear people say, well, you know, the Bible, that's like believing in Santa Claus. Or the Bible, that's like believing in the Easter Bunny. How do we know that Jesus is any more real than the Easter Bunny? Well, how do you know? Without the convicting work of the Holy Ghost, without the enlightening of the Spirit of God within your own heart, you don't know. So step number one is the conviction of the Holy Ghost. Step number two leads you to salvation. And that is, have tasted of the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is the heavenly gift. Now, the fact that he says tasted of the heavenly gift means you come into a relationship with him. So notice the progression. The progression is somebody that has been under conviction and then got saved, made Jesus the Lord of their lives. Step number three, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. The word partakers is the word companions. Now, there's, how do we know what, what this means? Well, 
It could mean companion of the Holy Ghost because you receive the Holy Ghost in salvation, but it could also mean a companion of the Holy Ghost by being filled with the Spirit of God. You're going to see by this one of the later steps that it has to be the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So conviction, salvation, baptism in the Spirit. Number four, and have tasted the good word of God. That means they begin to grow and they learn the truth of the word. They're beginning to mature. This wouldn't apply to the Corinthian church because the Corinthians never grew. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If you taste the good word of God, you're going to grow. We know that, don't we? Look at all the years we wasted where we didn't hear the word of God and we didn't grow. So the next step is you're growing in the knowledge of the word. Step number five is and have tasted the powers of the world to come. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about spiritual gifts. So please notice the criteria for somebody to ever get to the point where they could lose their salvation. Convicted, saved, filled with the Holy Ghost, maturing in the Word, and operating in spiritual gifts. Folks, I would submit to you that most of the people that are worried about losing their salvation have never matured to the point where they can That's why verse 5 says, or I'm sorry, verse 6 says, yet, after all five of those things, yet they fall away. Now, folks, I would submit to you, and you know this as well as I do, if you just think about some of the things that you've read about in the book of Acts, the church of Jerusalem had qualified in all five of those areas. Every one of them. They were convicted. They were saved. They were filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 happened in Jerusalem. They tasted the good word of God. They began to grow in the knowledge of the word. Remember, that was one of the reasons in Acts chapter 6 that Peter and the apostles wouldn't do the waiting on tables themselves. They said, pick out deacons to do that stuff. We want to attend to the word of God in prayer. Why? So they'd have something to teach people. Have something to minister to them. And then they were operating in spiritual gifts. Remember in Jerusalem it says that people were healed by the shadow of Peter. There was such a move of the Spirit of God that Peter just walked down the road and the shadow would fall on the sick people and they'd get healed. That's where these folks came from. And now look where they are. Paul is warning them. He's saying, you stay on this road. Going back to the old covenant. Going back to the doctrines of Moses. Instead of realizing who died for you, who shed his blood for you, and all that it provided for you. You continue to discount these things, and you get to the place where you'll make a choice for the law of Moses, the sacrifices of the Old Testament instead of the sacrifice of the New Testament, and it'll be impossible to renew that person or those to repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. What is it that puts Jesus to an open shame when somebody says, I've experienced all the goodness of salvation, and I don't want that? Now, in their case, they're saying, I want the law of Moses instead. Now, folks, let's let's just be real here for a minute. What in the world would cause somebody to do that? There's only one thing I know of. There's only one thing that makes any sense to me, and that is there's a real comfort in thinking that if you perform this way, then this is your result. 
Because if I'm, if I've got my set of, of rules and regulations, if I've got my 10 or 12 or 20 or whatever things to do, even though those things may be hard, oh, God knows I'm trying my best. And if I just do those things to the best of my ability, then I'll be okay with God. That's a whole lot easier than believing in things that you can't see to the natural man. That's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot easier. And I see a lot of Christians doing this kind of stuff today. I'm not saying they're in this category. I'm just saying it's a similarity. I see a lot of Christians today that would whole lot rather just pray and say, Oh, God, if, you're, if it's your will, then please save so-and-so. Oh, God, if it's your will, please heal so-and-so. Oh, God, if it's your will, please don't let my house go in foreclosure. And then whichever way it goes, we can say, Well, I guess that was God's fault. One way or the other. He either did good or he did bad. It's not me. I see a lot of people that take comfort in that stuff because you'll show them the truth. Say, wait a minute, you can be healed. You don't have to wait and pray and see if it's God's will. God's already said so in his word. But they'll turn that away. They'll turn their back on that and go back to the old way of, well, you just never know. So the only thing I can assume, and again, this is just my own personal experience, and I don't claim to have the answers on this. If somebody's got a better answer, you know, I'm open to it. You can tell me after church. But the only thing I can assume is that they're looking for the natural comfort of if I do X, then I get Y. And that's what puts Jesus to an open shame. Because it's all entrusting in the natural man. It's all entrusting in the flesh and the actions of the outward man rather than living according to who Jesus has made us on the inside. And let's face it, if we take the position that, that our righteousness is as filthy rags, you don't have anything to live up to. Because if our righteousness is as filthy rags, then who could expect us to live like we're righteous? So we're just doing the best we can. I, I shudder to think where, God, where the, the modern-day church particularly in America. I shudder to think where the modern-day church in America falls on the maturity scale, spiritual maturity scale. I'd be surprised if we're much above, if they're much above, spiritual babies themselves. Maybe children, but young children. So Paul is saying it's, if they, it's uh, impossible if yet they fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves. Notice that they crucify to themselves. They're not crucifying Jesus to the world. They're not changing anything where the world is concerned or where the gospel is concerned. They're just making a personal decision. They crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, let me go down through, uh, uh, let me go down through verse 9 and then, uh, well, let me go down through verse 9. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that comes often upon it and brings forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. Remember Isaiah 55, we were talking about this on our Sunday morning series where it says, uh, so shall my word be, verse 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It comes down from heaven, it waters the earth, and it accomplishes what God intends for it to do. That's what Paul is talking about. This is the reference that he uses here. He's saying the word of God, the gospel of Jesus, the truth of salvation will produce in those who will allow it to produce in them. 
but to those who reject it. Which fall away, is re- that's really what it means. If they shall fall away. The only other place in the New Testament where this word fall away is used, Paul uses it talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, when the Jews stumbled and fell or rejected, then the gospel went to the Gentiles. So he's saying, if somebody rejects the good word of God or rejects the benefits of salvation or all the work of Jesus, then their end is to be burned. In other words, cast into the lake of fire. They'll be accursed. But now notice verse 9. He said, but we expect better of you. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accomplish, accompany salvation, though we thus speak. He's saying, even though I'm telling you and warning you about this, I'm not expecting you to go there. Now turn with me over to 1 John. I will close with this. Uh, I'll have to make some comments, but I, I, I really hesitate to, to wait and separate what we have said with what we need to say. 1 John chapter 5. Now, what's the way for them to turn around? 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. They need to confess their sin. They need to confess that, okay, look, we see we've been on the wrong track. We have lost spiritual standing. We have lost spiritual development because we went back to the law of Moses. We went back to the foundations of the old covenant. So, Lord, we repent of that. Now we want to get back on the good word of God. Now we want to grow and mature. That's how they turn it around. Now, notice what John said in writing about something that, uh, that is confusing to a lot of people. I hope it's not to you, but it is to a lot of people. Notice in 1 John chapter 5, um, let's start in verse 14. It says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How do we know what his will is? His word is his will. So if we ask anything according to his word, he hears us. God hears prayers based on his word. Always pray the word. And if we know that he hears us, then whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, there's only one exception that John is going to make to this this principle, and that's in verse 16. He says, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. In other words, he's saying there is one sin that you can see somebody committing in their life, that you're not going to get God to hear you on no matter what. Now, what is this sin unto death? See, people confuse so many things in Scripture. They take what uh, Hebrews chapter 6 talks about falling away or losing their salvation, and they jumble that up with the unpardonable sin, and they jumble that up with the sin unto death. And folks, those are three different things. Okay, we'll quit here. Those are three different things. You remember Jesus said, any man that blasphemes the Holy Ghost, it will not be forgiven him here or in heaven. You remember that? What had, the, Jew, what had the, the, the Jews, the religious leaders, just done? They said Jesus was casting out devils by the power of the Beelzebub. That means that if you say, if somebody, Christian, non-Christian, well, non-Christian, it wouldn't matter because they're rejecting Jesus anyway. That's the least of their problems. But for a Christian... Let's say a Christian minister that says that healing is not what God's doing today and that people are being healed, they're healed of the devil. Or people that speak with tongues, that's of the devil. Isn't that the same thing that they did with Jesus? They're saying that something was of God that was happening through him was really of the devil? What does that mean? That means they're going to have to answer for that in heaven. And that means somehow or another, and I don't know how it works, 
I'm not suggesting that there's a brand across somebody's forehead for eternity or anything like that. But there's something where that's going to be marked against them forever. It won't keep them out of heaven. It won't keep them from enjoying the blessings of God while they're there. It won't keep them from receiving other rewards that they did when they, they performed things for eternals, uh, eternity's sake. But there's something about that that they'll hold on to that forever. Just like Jesus has the marks in his hands for eternity. There's going to be some kind of holdover for eternity if Jesus meant what he said. So in that sense, that's an unpardonable sin. Doesn't keep anybody out of heaven. He didn't say somebody will fail to make heaven because of it. He just says it's a sin that won't be forgiven here or in heaven. Thank God that's not the one you go to hell for. There's only one sin that you go to hell for, and that's the sin of rejecting Jesus. Okay? So that's one thing. The second thing is somebody losing their salvation. We just saw that and looked at that in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. The third thing is the sin unto death. What in the world is the sin unto death? Hebrews 6 is not the sin unto death. Blaspheming the Holy Ghost is not the sin unto death. What is the sin unto death? Folks, you already know. It's not the sin unto spiritual death. It's a sin unto physical death. You remember in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Ghost and fell dead? They committed the sin unto death. You remember the guy that took his father's wife at the church at Corinth and Paul turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? That was the sin unto death. And nobody else could change that, but he did. He turned around and repented and, and changed it. The Old Testament tells us about Hezekiah. Hezekiah committed the sin unto death, and Isaiah went to him to tell him, you're going to die. Hezekiah changed it. He turned his face to the wall and changed it. The sin unto death is where man operates in such a way that it affects others and affects the body of Christ in some way so that it causes them physical, causes them to lose their physical life. William Branham is a good example in modern day. William Branham was operating in the, in the 1950s in, in tremendous, tremendous power of God. And he got so popular that he began calling himself the angel of the, uh, of, uh, the messenger of the covenant. Well, the Bible says that's Jesus. But he began to say that he's the messenger of the covenant. The Lord told Brother Hagin that in three years' time, and this was in the, by, by that time, it was, it was in the, uh, Early 60s, I guess, something like that. Brother Hagen was at a meeting with Gordon Lindsay, the founder of Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas. His wife, Rita Lindsay, now runs the thing, has for many years since he's gone home to be the Lord. Brother Hagen, uh, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and, and um, uh, Brother Hagen started prophesying. He prophesied in the 60s about the Vietnam War, and then uh, he said, and, and uh, he prophesied for several years, five, six, seven years, whatever it was, that were, uh, that were coming. And, uh, and Gordon Lindsay saw the Spirit of the Lord on him, and so he ran and, and got some paper, and, and he started making notes. He started jotting down and making notes. And during that prophecy, toward the end of that prophecy, Brother Hagin prophesied by the Spirit of the Lord that the ones that stands at the forefront of the prophet's ministry will go off of the scene. He'll lose his life so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, after it was all over and they were discussing it, Gordon Lindsay started reading through and he said, Brother Hagin, did you know you said this? Did you know you said this? And what about this? You said the foremost prophet in the land. Who is that? And he named somebody. And Brother Hagin said, no, I can't be him. He's not a prophet. Well, who is it then? He says, it's got to be Brother Branham. 
Got to be Brother Branham. What happened was in Brother Branham's ministry, and I'm not, I'm not throwing rocks at him. He made a mistake. We certainly want to learn from the mistake that he made and not, not follow his error. But he did some wonderful things for God. There are multitudes of people in the, in the kingdom of God because of what he did. So please don't think I'm criticizing. I'm just using it as an example. But he got to the place where people were following him and believing the things that he said about being the messenger of the covenant, and it was beginning to divide the church. And God's always going to protect his body. Some people say, yeah, well, the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. God was mad at him. He had a car wreck. He and his wife were in the car, and the car flipped. And his wife was over there at the point of death, and she reached over and she said something to him. He's about to die, reaches over, lays his hand on her, and she's perfectly healed. Then he goes home to be with the Lord. I'd say that's pretty much evidence that the Spirit of the Lord didn't depart from him. Wouldn't you think? No, he made an error. And even though people tried to talk to him about it, even though people tried to show him where the error was, he wouldn't correct the error, and so it became a sin unto death. Became a sin unto death. That's what this is talking about. And it has nothing to do with somebody losing their salvation. Where's Brother Branham now? He's running up and down the streets of heaven. Waiting for the award ceremony. And he'll have great rewards. So people take these things, at least in my experience. People take these verses of Scripture and just yank them out of their context. And they say, well, what about this? How does this apply and how does that apply? Folks, there are three or four different things like this. I haven't even covered all of them. But there are three or four different parts of this subject, parts of this category. Paul is talking in Hebrews chapter 6 about a specific situation with a church that's, un- that's unlike any other church I've ever known. I know a lot of churches that are baby Christians, but not because they were spiritual or were mature, and now they've reverted back to babies. The churches I know of are more like the Corinthian church that just never grew. The pastor never taught them anything, so they just never grew. Do you see the point he's making? Paul's going to continue in the sixth chapter trying to bring them back to the right place so that in chapter 7 he can tell them all the things about Jesus being the high priest that he wanted to in chapter 5. But he's got to try to lead them down the path to show them, here's the error that you're making, here's the condition that you're in, here's how to change that. And folks, this is how the Holy Ghost always works with us. He'll show you your mistakes for the purpose, not of condemning you. Paul doesn't condemn them but to show them their mistakes so that they can make the correction, so that they can come back into the place where God wants them to be and walk in the fullness of his blessings. So no matter what mistake you've made, no matter how long you've been making it, you can take 1 John 1, 9 and get back on the right track, and God will treat treat you like it never happened. And that's part of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. What they don't understand and won't understand until later is that the things Paul has described to them about their own situation is the very work that Jesus does as our high priest sitting at the right hand of God. But he makes it personal because of the condition they're in. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you for giving me a little extra time. Let's pray before we go. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to read and study your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is so easy to understand when we just allow the Holy Spirit to show us the truth. Father, we thank you that you are good and your mercy endures forever. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and he's always on our side. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our high priest, that you are touched with the feelings of our infirmities, always ready to help, to give us aid and comfort. 
to bring us back into the right place so that we can walk in victory. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.